Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 6. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, choir, uh, for leading us so faithfully in worship through song. We're blessed to have not only gifted musicians we are, and singers, we are blessed to have those using their gifts for the glory of God. We easily take that for granted. I also want to thank everyone that was involved with VBS. There's so many we could name, but Jennifer Vale and Haley Wine kind of spearheaded this. And so if you see them, please give them a hug for us. He, this VBS was really special in particular because of the subject matter. It was providential that our subject matter this year was the image of God. It was a blessing for those of us who were here to see hundreds of children every day stand up and say, I am an image bearer, so are you. And really that gets at the heart of the right to life movement. Uh, it's not political for us. In fact, it has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the reality that we were created as God's image bearers. And abortion is an assault on God's image bearers, which means it's an assault on God. And you can have all of your emotional arguments, but those emotional arguments uh, for abortion do not stand. The Word of God stands. And thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Haley, for uh, leading this, spearheading this. It was a remarkable week. And it was concluded with a pie in the face for both Jennifer and me. Uh, the children, get this, raised over $3,900 uh, for Women's Hope. Yeah, amen. Just children being faithful, coins, dollars, bills, all of it adding up. We kind of see that in our text today. And we ended up with over $3,900. Uh, Laura and Rachel and Aaron were amazing on stage. It, it was just a wonderful week and uh, ended with a pie in the face, which by, uh, providentially, you can't plan this. That pie in the face for both of us occurred about the same time that the announcement from the Supreme Court was announced. It was almost uh, symbolic, <laughs> all right? A pie in the face to a bad ruling in 1973. A misapplication of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm not going to preach on that today, but over the next two or three weeks, I will be addressing it in my pastor's pen. And so I know many of you are well-versed in this, but for those of you that perhaps need some more information on how to defend this right to life uh, ministry that we embrace. Uh, I, I wanna try to help you with that over the next two or three weeks in the pastor's pen. So the first one will come out this week. Thank you, Greg, for always fitting my, my pastor pen, which is sometimes too long, uh, into, a, into the, our, our Lakeview life in a way that looks aesthetically pleasing. Well, if you would, look with me. In a, uh, Luke, or John chapter 5, that's the, the third try, and we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 6, but really the context 
is chapter 5, verses 45 to 47. So if you would look with me here, uh, Jesus says of Moses, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And then in chapter 6, the entire chapter basically expounds on that reality. That the point of Moses' writings is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We've already sung that Jesus is the true and better Adam. The true and better Moses. And Father, we pray that we would even see that today. And that it would strengthen our faith in him, the Lord Jesus Christ our all-sufficient Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Louis Zamperini, maybe you have read about him in the book Unbroken or saw the movie Unbroken, a wonderful book and movie. But he was a, a bombardier in the U.S. Army Air Forces in the Second World War. But on May the 27th, 1943, because of mechanical problems, Uh, His plane crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Louis and two of his colleagues survived the crash, and they secured a couple of floats from the plane, and they began to float. And they floated, and they floated. And after four weeks on the float, they're still alive, but the U.S. government had given up hope of finding them. And so they stopped searching. Well... On June the 27th, 1943, tomorrow, 29, or 79 years ago, uh, Louis and his two colleagues saw a plane overhead. It was their first sign of hope. And they began to fire flares, hoping to get their attention. Well, they got the attention of the plane. The problem was it was a Japanese bomber. And so this bomber began to stray bullets at Louis and his friends. They hid under the float and they survived that, but now they knew that the Japanese were very aware of their presence. 16 days later, they were captured as they floated into the Marshall Islands and they were held captive and tortured until the end of the war. It was a hopeless situation Uh, for Louis. And after 13 months in that camp, he had all but given hope. But in October of 1944, he was pushing a wheelbarrow across a bridge in Tokyo under guard when he saw graffiti on a sign. And the graffiti read, Be Niju Ku. Well, He didn't know what that meant, but he knew that the letter B was the American letter B. And he knew that Niju was Japanese for 20. And Ku was Japanese for the number 9. But he did not know what B29 represented. Um, In November, just a month after that, an American plane left... Saipan, its size was absolutely stunning, 
and it could fly at 358 miles per hour. Um, it was the B-29. And it had been used a few times already over Japan just months earlier. And so much so that the Japanese were terrified of the B-29, and hence the graffiti on the sign, B-29. Well, at noon that day in Tokyo, a siren sounded, and someone shouted, an American plane. The guards of the, of the prison camp were stricken with fear, and they began to say, be Nijuku, be Nijuku. And a cheer rang out among the POWs, and they began to chant, B-29, B-29. Well, that plane flew over Tokyo for around an hour and then left. But at that point, everyone knew. Everyone knew it meant that the United States military knew where these POWs were and they were going to do something about it. And Louis and his fellow POWs persevered over the next nine months in light of that hope. We could say that flyover uh, of the B-29 served these POWs in an analogous way that these sign miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ serve every believer for the last 2,000 years. The Lord knows where we are, and he is doing something about it. And like Louis, we can persevere in that hope. And that brings us uh, to the longest chapter in the New Testament. If you're into Bible trivia, there's your uh, question, uh, what is the longest chapter of the New Testament? It is John chapter 6. And in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus' fourth sign miracle and his fifth sign miracle. Sign miracle that drive home in this particular case, ironically, our utter insufficiency and inadequacies. But it's very hopeful because it drives home the all-sufficient adequacy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But to get there, the Lord has to show us how inadequate we are. And so in the first part of this passage, we see the Lord tests us to expose our insufficiencies. The Lord tests us to expose our insufficiencies. Look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, which is actually a lake, it's just a large lake. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Again, uh, the word sign in John is just another word for miracle. But he, he uses the term sign because the point is not the miracle. The point is what it is Signaling, it is pointing to, it's like an index finger, uh, pointing to something even greater. So as we've seen, the point of these signs was to point to something greater. And at face value, this crowd seems to have come to understand that 
Time is going to reveal otherwise. We'll see that later in chapter 6. But notice in verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now scholars tend to believe this is the second Passover we've seen in John. There are three Passovers. The first we saw when he went in to Jerusalem and turned over the, the tables. This is the second, and there'll be the third. And so this one occurs, most scholars believe, in April of 32 A.D. The third one will occur in 33 A.D. So he's about one year out at this point from the cross. But most importantly... Uh, G, uh, John here says that it was the time of the Passover. So whatever month it was, we know it was the Passover. And whatever year it was, it was the Passover. And uh, we're supposed to understand what that means. Because this is not insignificant information for us. Of course, we know the first Passover was the night God redeemed his people. As the blood of the sacrificial lambs were, were painted on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over those homes that were covered in the blood. And, and God redeemed his people, not because they were worthy of redemption. He redeemed them because the animals had died in their place. In other words, they were judged just like Egypt was judged, but they were judged through the substitute. And then after the redemption, God is going to feed them, right, with manna in the wilderness. All of that imagery is being picked up in John chapter 6. As Jesus is driving home, Moses wrote of me. And so later, when Israel after being in the land, faced exile, God comes to them through the prophets and said, there's going to come a day when even though you are in exile, I'm going to bring about a greater exodus. All of that's being communicated. In John 6, the sign miracles at the time of the Passover point to that day. It's a day when what ought to be and what is will be reconciled, all right? What ought to be and what is will be reconciled. We don't live in that day yet. It's been inaugurated, but we don't live in the consummation of that day with what is and what ought to be. It's a day when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world will be one. We don't live in that day yet, but one day the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world be one and the same. Revelation 21 and 22. These sign miracles are pointing to that day. Now notice in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Moses asked the same question in the book of Numbers as they were in the wilderness. He asked the Lord, where can I get meat for all these people? Same question. 
The only difference is Moses didn't know the answer. Jesus did. Because he's the true and better Moses. In fact, Matthew 9, all four Gospels pick this up, by the way. Matthew's account tells us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. And remember, Jesus has already said he only does what he sees the Father doing. And so here we see the Lord Jesus' compassion, but we see the Father's compassion as Jesus cares for these needy people. And this is the turning point in the story. But understand, it's always the turning point. The mercy, the compassion of our Savior. Without his compassion, in a world of sin and pain, things spiral down. They spiral down. We can't fix our, nor anybody else's problems. And Jesus' compassion is so fundamental because as Mark's account tells us, the disciples seeing the needy crowd suggested to Jesus, Mark chapter 6, to send the people away. That was their solution to the problem, just send them away. And those disciples' indifference uh, to this crowd, I think, is a mirror for all of us at times uh, and our attitude towards the needy. Yes, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 that if a person does not work, that person should not eat. In other words, if a person can work and refuses to work, no one should enable that slothfulness and laziness. That person just should not eat, all right? The government shouldn't bail that person out. That person shouldn't eat if that person can work. And yet, in other places, for instance, Galatians 2.10, Paul is admonished by the disciples, the apostles, to remember the poor. And so there is real, legitimate need out there. Not everyone is a culprit when it comes to need. In fact, that's why so many of you, and it blesses me on, on Monday mornings or when I see Tom and other staff ministering to those who have physical and material needs, so many of you are involved in our benevolence ministry here at Lakeview because you understand that. In fact, I think at this point, uh, Lakeview has invested $47,000 in benevolence ministry thus far. Around $100,000 a year is invested in benevolence ministry. And praise God for that. We can always grow and mature in that. Of course, we have to be discerning. Some churches are so fixated on social ministry that they've lost sight of the fact that the greatest need is not material or physical. It's to be made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But could it be that what we see in verse 6, and we're about to see it, is one of the reasons the Lord entrusts needy image bearers to God's people. Look with me in verse 6. He said this to test him. And so he has spoken to Philip where are we to buy bread. 
And verse 6 tells us why Jesus asked the question. He said this to test him. Now, we need to remember that the Lord does not tempt us, but he does test us. The devil tempts us to destroy us, but the Lord tests us to employ us. So his testings are always acts of grace and mercy. His tests, and they come daily, don't they? Some are more severe than others. Some are low-grade tests. But his tests that come daily are meant to examine us and expose our weaknesses and our inadequacies and our insufficiencies so that we will awaken from our slumber and depend on the Lord. But make no mistake, he tests us not to find out how strong we are, By the way, he's never finding out anything. He's omniscient. But he does not test us so that we might find out how strong we are, but so that we can see how holy and totally inadequate and insufficient we are apart from him. Understand this. Weakness is not our biggest problem. Our delusion of strength is. And so when you are aware of your weakness... It births urgency and dependency in you. When you are deluded by this apparent strength that you have, you have no sense of urgency. You have no sense of fervency and dependency and desperation. Um, While I was in California for the SBC, my tooth started hurting and It was so severe, I almost fainted three times. I got a dental appointment while I was out there. I mean, it's a beautiful day in in Anaheim, low 70s, no humidity, and I'm sitting in a a dental chair. And the dentist looked at my teeth, and he said, man, your teeth look great. There's nothing wrong with you. I said, well, um, there has to be something wrong with me because I'm sitting in a dental chair in Southern California (laughs) on a beautiful day. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, the pain just got worse and worse. And came back to Auburn, and the dentists here know what they're doing. And, <laughs> and my dentist looked at my tooth and said, oh, man, that thing is cracked. looks like a smiley face, and it goes down to the nerves. No wonder you're in pain. And he gave me an antibiotic that I think you have to take every 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> actually, every six hours. And you know what? I gladly take that antibiotic. In fact, in take, to take it every six hours, I have to set my alarm at 4 a.m. I set my alarm at 4 a.m. and I take that antibiotic. Why? Is it because I'm so committed? No, I'm so desperate. I'm so desperate. I want the pain to go away and I'll do anything in that desperation. I'll do anything in that dependency on that antibiotic. You see, desperation has children. Desperation bears fruit. And, and for believers, what is, how does that desperation prove itself? You long to be with God's people in corporate worship. You need it. You, you long to be under the means of grace, teaching of the word, the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the, the, the reading of the word, the praying of the word, the Lord's Supper, baptism. You long for that. You need it. And when you're in your home, 
you long for the Word of God. You, you, you own your knees in dependency. That's evidence that you're aware of your insufficiencies. You're aware of your inadequacies. Desperation bears children, but a lack of desperation bears children as well. Dullness, indifference to corporate worship, to private and individual worship. And so the Lord is testing his people to expose your delusions of strength. That's what he's doing here is he's preparing his disciples and commissioning them later after he ascends to the Father. But here, as always, as the Lord tests, the Son of God knows what he's going to do in the test. Isn't that comforting? Look at the second part of verse 6. So he tests him, for he himself knew what he would do. That's so very comforting. When the tests come, the Lord's in control of the test. He knows what he's going to do. Jesus is not limited to the solutions we can think of. And Philip did not know that yet. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worthy of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So one denarii was a day's wages for a laborer in first century Israel. Okay? So he's talking some eight months salary. Eight months salary, 200 days of work would not pay for the kind of need that we see here. And this is ironic in light of the fact of what Philip has already seen so far in Jesus' ministry. He has seen him perform at least three sign miracles. He has seen him turn the water into wine. He has seen him heal the official son. And he has seen him heal the man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. But he was dull to the glory of Christ just as we are. So this test is exposing Philip's weak faith. Yes, Philip was a believer, just like most of us are, but his faith is weak. He's like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. How does he help us? He tests us. So here, the math of the mind, rather than the math of the kingdom, is ruling Philip. And that is often our problem. The math of the mind told him, you have finite resources and seemingly infinite need. Do you think that is one of the ways that the Lord matures us? I think so. He strips us of all of our self-sufficiency. Notice in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, why is this important? The, the boy here did not have large loaves of bread or large fish. These barley loaves, scholars tell us, were about the size of Twinkies. And, and the fish that he had basically flavored the bread. 
made it edible because barley was very cheap. It was for poor people. It was kind of like little sardines that would have flavored uh, the bread. In other words, this boy has enough for himself. It, it's just enough for a little boy, whatever age he was, to eat. He had brought enough for his own lunch. And if Andrew had stopped there, he would have gone down as a legend, as an example of real faith, that he would have the audacity to think this boy's lunch was enough to feed. And yet, notice in the second part of verse 9, we see ourselves in the second part of verse 9, don't we? But what are they for so many? What are they for so many? We certainly see ourselves in Andrew. I see myself in Andrew. Um, For instance, when we hear numbers like I heard at the Southern Baptist Convention from our International Mission Board, it's estimated that daily 157,690 people die daily without Christ. 59% of the world, according to IMB, is considered unreached. And there are According to the IMB, 7,327 unreached people groups. So here's the question. What can one mission trip do? What can one missions pastor do? What can one missionary or missionary couple do? What can one evangelistic encounter do? We're completely inadequate. And that kind of thinking is the spirit of Andrew here. But what Jesus is doing, he is setting the disciples up for something glorious. He tests us so that we might see our insufficiencies. But the Lord is present in our test to educate us on his sufficiency. And that's the second part of this passage Notice in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Now notice there are 5,000 men. So they didn't count the wives. They didn't count the children. And so it is estimated there would have been some 15, 20,000 people in the crowd, like a a sold-out arena, a large sold-out arena. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, I don't want you to overlook the fact that the only one who seems to have faith in Jesus in this passage is the little boy. Not the disciples. That's one one of the reasons we know, uh, of many reasons, that we know that the Word of God is the Word of God. Because if, if disciples and apostles were writing this without the inspiration of the Spirit, they would not have painted themselves in such a negative light. All right, so we, we've seen Philip and Andrew, uh, they, they look like bumbling fools. But the little boy 
seems to be the only one who has faith in Jesus. Why? Because he offered the little he had to Jesus. He had his meal for the day and he gave his meal to Jesus. And this boy's example should inform us all. So we, we take the little we have and even the most gifted and wealthiest among us here, when you consider the vast need that is out there, the vast needs of a broken world, it is small in comparison. But we take the little that we have, and as the boy teaches us here, we put it in Jesus' hands. And then in the hands of Jesus, he multiplies it beyond our imaginations. Every believer here has spiritual gifts. You have at least one. It's possible you have more than one. Every believer here has talents, has time, has resources of some kind that are completely inadequate for the need. There is not a single person here who has adequate resources and talents and gifts. But then you give them to Jesus. You put them in the hands of Jesus and let him use them. A.W. Pink said, Jesus did not scorn the loaves because they were few in number. Not the fish because they were small. How this tells us that God is pleased to use small and weak things. Amen? Perhaps he is ready to use you. Weak insignificant and ignorant though you be. But mark it carefully. It was only as these loaves and fish were placed in the hands of Christ that they were made efficient and sufficient. One of the reasons I think many of us don't use our gifts is because we're paralyzed by their inadequacies by the insufficiencies of your gifts and talents. And this boy teaches us by his example something that's very vital for all of us. And once in his hands, notice what Jesus did. He gave gave thanks. Um, It says, when he had given thanks. Now that's important because those very words are used later at the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those very words. And when he had given thanks, we also see it when Paul is explaining the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. So there's an intentional connection here. Not only that, later on in John 6, we'll see this later, Jesus speaking in the context of eating the bread says those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will not hunger and thirst again. And so John is intentionally connecting the provision that Jesus makes here with the provision he will ultimately make that is symbolized by the Lord's Supper. Interestingly, in Luke's account, and I don't know why John left it out, In Luke's account, Luke 9, 16, he broke the loaves. He broke the loaves as he's about to multiply them, and he gave them to the disciples. 
Just as a side here, the first time I was ever taught uh, or under liberal teaching, I was at the University of Alabama as an FCA, and they brought in the Baptist Student Union director. Praise God, Auburn has a strong one, and maybe Alabama has one today, but this was 30 years ago. And he came to FCA, and he taught on this passage, and he said what happened was uh, the little boy gave what he had, and and Jesus distributed it, and everyone else caught the spirit of generosity, and they began to give the little that they had, and next thing you know, you have the whole crowd is fed. Well, that's classic liberalism, explaining the supernatural reality of this passage away. But the glory of Christ is at stake in that. Because John intends for us to see this as a sign miracle, pointing beyond itself. And so the word, when it says uh, Jesus broke the loaves, is the same word that is used at the Lord's Supper when he broke the bread. And we know that breaking that bread was a symbol of his body being broken on the cross. And so this miracle goes beyond just the meeting of the material physical needs. And that's why this language is so important. Notice, as much as they wanted, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Luke 9, 17 tells us that they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? They all ate and were satisfied. Matthew Henry says, those whom Christ feeds, he fills. And he's the only one that can fill. That's what the text is teaching us. There is always in Christ super abundance. And it's believing this. And it's in knowing this. That's the key to faith, hope, love, contentment, peace, and obedience. Well, notice in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, I love that language. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled, not 10 baskets, not 14. This is intentional. 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Do you think those 12 baskets is arbitrary? Not on your life. It was 12 baskets to 12 disciples who had a delusion of strength, who had now been taught that your greatest strength is in knowing you are weak and inadequate, but Jesus is all sufficient. Jesus does his best work precisely at the moment when our weaknesses are exposed. Alexander McLaren says the pieces grew under his touch and the disciples always found his hands full when they came back with theirs empty. It's beautiful language. So with our, without our Lord's blessings, five loaves and two fish are nothing. Without the Lord's blessings, my talents and your talents, my resources and your resources are absolutely nothing. But with his blessing, more than enough. More than enough. Note the result, verse 14, as we close here. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
course, that is picking up the language of Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is not a coincidence that John presents this miracle right after Jesus' reference to Moses in chapter 5 where he says, he wrote of me, and now he is proving that. Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And just as Moses had mediated manna in the wilderness, so the greater Moses would not only mediate the manna, he would be the manna. He would be the bread by which they eat and never hunger again. Closing thoughts and we'll be done. First of all, we may not know how the Lord is going to meet our daily needs, but he is not limited by our solutions. Remember that or you'll get anxious. Remember that or you'll get discouraged. Remember that or you'll despair because he's going to test you. And in the test, you're not going to know how he's going to meet your needs, but he is not limited by your solutions. The miracle here By the way, I asked the kids last night as we were reading this as a family, how many miracles in the four Gospels are picked up in all four Gospels? There's only only two. The resurrection is picked up by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so is the feeding of the 5,000. You think this is an important miracle? And so this miracle is driving home something that is so easy for us to forget. Our Lord is not limited by our inadequacies. In fact, our inadequacies are his strategy. His power is made perfect in our strength. No, his power is made perfect in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. Secondly, this miracle, most importantly, testifies to the uniqueness of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Yahweh provided manna in the wilderness, Jesus is our provision in our own wilderness between our redemption and our inheritance. But we need to recognize that's not merely material provision that he provides. John has given us a sign miracle In other words, this story isn't simply about Jesus, the miracle worker. It's about Jesus, the bread of life. The bread of life who would be broken so that not just 5,000 or 20,000 could be fed and then hunger again in four or five hours, but so that an innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue could eat and never hunger again. That is ultimately the point behind this passage. And it's what we believe at Lakeview as Christians. But we are like the man who believes, but Lord help our unbelief. But there are some of you that don't believe that yet. And so as Adam and the musicians come forward, I plead with you this morning, understand that If you don't see your need for Jesus this morning, your biggest problem is your delusion of strength. You are too strong. It was said of King Uzziah, he was marvelously helped until he became strong. And you are too strong. This text tells us you need Jesus today. 
You need Jesus not just for your material needs. You need Jesus who was broken so that you don't have to be. He was crushed so that you don't have to be. And if you will trust in him today, the Bible says you will never have to hunger again. That, that hole that's in your heart, eternity has been set in the hearts of men. That hole that is in your heart can only be filled by the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus this morning. Respond in, a me, uh, in obedience of faith, in repentance and faith. We're going to have pastors here at the end of the aisles. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.